Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all and to be with you all tonight. Uh, tonight we will be meditating on a verse of scripture from the letter to the Romans found in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 20. So I invite you to open your Bibles to follow along with me as we contemplate this verse together. So Romans chapter 8, verse 20. It reads, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. Well, we pick up our verse in the Apostle Paul's theological discourse in a portion of Scripture where he wants to encourage his hearers who are in the faith. He wants to make an observation about the creation and the created order that parallels the Christian life so as to give them endurance and to press on. And to briefly orient ourselves, the apostle had begun his argument by explaining the need for righteousness to avoid the coming wrath of God against all unrighteousness. And furthermore, that our righteous efforts are insufficient to accomplish this. That what we need is the very righteousness of God. These prior chapters masterfully weave all humanity into the need of a savior whilst also positioning Jesus Christ as that savior. And after making the case why righteousness by faith is biblically warranted, he goes on to describe the practical implications of living in this world by this faith. And it is here that the apostle begins to frame up the situation in which believers find themselves. And it's out of the situation that causes him to want to encourage them. One of the most frustrating, disheartening, and confusing experiences of the Christian life is the paradox of living in a body that still has its sinful tendencies, as well as having the living spirit of God within them. We want to do what is right, but we, strangely, we are strangely motivated to accomplish what is evil as well. And this battle is ongoing. It's almost like it gets more intense the more mature one becomes in the faith. As we grow in holiness, the frustration of the flesh feels amplified as it opposes the spirit which causes much confusion, and it's a wretched experience. After all, isn't this God's will for our life, our sanctification? And so the preceding context of our verse this evening is one of suffering. Internal suffering as one wages a war against one's flesh, and probably an external suffering as one tries to live out the, the practical expectations of the Christian life and how we work and serve and seek to represent Christ in a fallen world. And so as we dive into tonight's text, I pray that we too come away encouraged as we examine this verse together. And in order to do so, I want us to consider three points about the subjection and futility of creation to guard our time together. And from each, we'll consider a few implications and responses. So let's begin. First, let us note that creation's subjection to futility is God's doing, but it's our fault. When we think of something as futile, we, we may think of something having come to the end of its usefulness. Like when you rummage through your storage area and pull out some contraption from decades ago, say, maybe an old landline telephone, perhaps one with a cord that attaches the headset, the handset to the base. Your impression of such a thing now is that it would be futile. Where would you put it? Is there still any way to plug it in? 
Is there even a service provider for it anymore? Some of you are wondering, what is a landline telephone? <laughs> this, however, is not how we should think of our lives and of the futility of creation around us. Creation's current futility is not that of a once usefulness, which is now surpassed by something better. Rather, we do well to recognize that it is the Lord God who has subjected the creation to this current state. He has altered its state from that which was good to something that which frustrates the good. And that is what our text tells us. It says, creation was subjected because of him who subjected it. The him here is God. There is no one else in the surrounding context it could be. And besides, there are not many other candidates to consider who has the authority and power to accomplish such a task. Suffice it to say, it is God who has subjected creation to futility. But this raises the question, why would God do this? The answer to that is not in our immediate text. And when we, when we consider that the epistle to the Romans has been talking of righteousness by faith and contrasting life and grace that comes from the obedience of Christ versus the consequence of death which comes from the disobedience of Adam, we can't help but be taken back to that fateful event in the garden long ago when our forebearers fell from grace. As you recall, the beginning of Scripture lays out for us the beginning of creation, a marvelous work by the hands of our powerful and wise God. And in his wisdom, he created and ordained that mankind should be his vice-regents and overseeing his domain under his rule. We were to govern it with all the righteousness and justice that is in our Lord. Adam was tasked to work and keep the garden, and Eve was his perfect helpmate, such that their labor would be a pleasure and that it would be fruitful and honoring to God's good design. But this perfect order was turned upside down with the, by the wiles of the serpent. Adam failed to keep the serpent out of the garden, and Eve failed to keep her husband at his post by inviting him into her transgression, such that it might be rightly said that all mankind disobeyed the Lord. And so God, in his mercy, pronounced judgment and curses appropriate to each lawbreaker. To Satan, he is relegated to wiggling through the dust of the earth, despite his preening of being the prince of this earth. To Eve, her crowning ability to bring forth life would now be multiplied in pain, in a way that brings new meaning to the word labor. And to Adam, because he ate what he should not eat, he will now toil and sweat to produce even his daily bread. And here, in this final curse, is the textual link back to our verse this evening. Cursed is the ground because of you, says our God. In pain you shall eat of it till you return to the ground from which you were taken. The reason for the cursing of the ground was because of Adam's sin, our sin. We do not, not get to blame God for the current state of affairs as if he has done wrong. No, we are to blame. We are the wrongdoers. But there is comfort that this is the Lord's doing. There is comfort in knowing that this is not the normative design of creation. It is reasonable to assume God could have ended his creation project right then and destroyed everything. But the fact that he didn't should be a signal of hope for us. There is a design and a purpose here, which we will soon see. But we need not think that the hands of God only make stark and terrifying worlds, worlds without cause. No, God is beautiful, and his handiwork is beautiful. 
but he did subject it to futility on account of our sin. So moving to our second point, in a similar vein as our first one, we see that the futility is widespread. As our text tells us, the, the creation is subjected to futility. The use of a definite article to describe the creation implies all of it, and not just a portion of it. As the subjection of creation comes from the hand of the Lord, who is above all things, so all things under him are affected. Sin's consequence is much greater than we think, not only in the degree of offense that it is to our holy God, but also to the degree of its impact. We are a critical part of the functioning of God's good creation, and when we ruin our purpose in it, then there is a ruining consequence to the rest of creation over which we were tasked to keep and care for. Scripture tells us in the book of Numbers, chapter 35, in the context of executing justice, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And in Isaiah chapter 24, the prophet says that the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants because they transgressed the laws and broke the everlasting covenant. Our sin affects all creation. And so all creation has been subjected to futility. There is no quiet corner in this globe where you can set up your little homestead to be governed by your modern intelligence and controlled by your modern technology so as to escape the futility of toil and hardship. Signing up for a mission to Mars to colonize a new untouched landscape only brings with it the guarantee that you will stay in that soil and pollute it with your sinful heart which you carry on with you in the journey. You don't even need to make space for it in the luggage. It's neatly tucked away in your flesh, rubbing its hands as you take it to fresh soil for its work. So why make a point of this? Well, I want to keep us from trying to make a go-around of the subjection you sense and perceive around you. There is no hidden, happy place to be found or to be made by our own doing. Wherever we go, we bring the problem with us. So spare yourself your already strained efforts. Instead, give thanks for the blessings you do have and look to God's ongoing plan and design in which you currently, which you currently see as futile and frustrating. And this leads us to our third point of the current futility, which is that it is a herald of future glory. As our text tells us, he who subjected it, subjected it in hope. A hope of what? Well, as verse 21 goes on to say, hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the same freedom of the glory of the children of God. And don't miss that. The purpose of the subjection of all creation is in hope of the coming freedom it will enjoy, a freedom found in the children of God as they come in their glory. That's you and me, church. And what glories await us? If, in its current subjected state, creation declares the glory of God and proclaims his handiwork, then how much more so will, we be, will the liberated creation sing and make manifest the wonders of the Lord? If you've ever had the privilege of seeing the vast starry sky or standing on a, even a modest mountainside, you know how your experience of the created order around you can quickly change and humble the perspective you have of yourself? The greatness of the one who made all things begins to gain traction in your senses. And what now, if we beheld the testimony of the son of creation, son from a position 
where it's free of bondage to corruption. It would probably explode from sensory overload if we were to experience such a thing in our current bodies. What business do jars of clay have to do to hold the glories of God? No, new bodies indeed are needed with glorified faculties to apprehend and enjoy and find delight in God Almighty, no longer veiled. This is the consummation of the things to come. But for now, God is busy uniting all things to him and under his rule. It is a reality and a truth, and it should impact our perceptions now because we have been granted a veiled vision of it from our text. So in closing, what can we conclude from all of this? First, don't despair. Don't despair of the subjection and futility you experience around you. Don't think that God can't be real in light of such a reality. Don't think that all we can see must only exist under some indifferent deity who cares nothing about the works of his hands. Now, God is good, and he does good. However, we are evil, and our sight is blurred by both our sinful wants and the tears of our misdeeds. So take God at his word. He knows better. He is redeeming and restoring that which we think is ruined, and God is merciful to do so. He would have been just to scrap his creation and cast us into hell for our sin, but instead he demonstrates his patience and his long-suffering for our sake as he waits on bringing our salvation to fruition. Second, don't be tempted to believe your efforts to grow in holiness and practice and to practice your godliness are meaningless. Definitely not. To neglect your sanctification is to deny God's will for you. And, as we saw, creation languishes under our sinfulness. So don't make it worse. Or to consider it positively, as you grow in holiness, you move the needle towards that great day that awaits us all. So be put into death that remaining sin and grow in the grace of our Lord. Thirdly, be careful of where you put your hope. You are to be salt and light in this futile world, but be careful you do not fall deeply in love with the works of your hands or in vain expectation of your legacy. Do not put your hope in the princes of man or in utopian ideals of humankind. And on the other end of the spectrum, guard yourself against seeking isolation to shield yourself from a difficult life. Proverbs 18.1 says that the man who seeks isolation seeks his own desire and breaks out against all sound judgment. Rather, seek shelter in Christ and in his church. This gathering is for you the designated safe place. So be here regularly with us. Fourth and lastly, let us be reminded that this future glory is not some far-off reality. It's not some far-off reality which we have no experience of. Remember that in the epistle to the Romans, he has instructed them that the very frustrations and sufferings they endure are heightened by the fact that they have the indwelling spirit of the living God. The spirit is our first fruit of our salvation. And our experience of the groaning within is the spirit expressing with words too deep to express our longing for the coming glories and for our present needs to sustain us until they come. Furthermore, we have the very author of life and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, to cast our eyes onto. Christ, who dwelt in eternal glory and bliss, subjected himself to a life of suffering in his own creation that we ruined. But where Adam failed, Jesus was victorious. He lived his whole life in obedience to his Father, obedient even unto death 
on a shameful cross for the sake of all those who would put their faith in him and so be united to him by the power of the Spirit. And that same Spirit that raised him from the dead and exalted him to glory, which now dwells in us, will also give life to our mortal bodies. And so may we say, along with Apostle Paul, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. May God give us grace to endure. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are very grateful for your word. What will we do without it? We'll grope in darkness and make a mess of things even more than we've made a mess of. So we thank you for your mercy and your graciousness. We thank you for revealing truth to us. We thank you for the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ and all that he has done. We pray that your spirit would be pleased to dwell in us richly and boldly, growing us in holiness and grace. We pray, Lord, that you would comfort us and sustain us and you would help us live a life now that honors you as we wait the coming glories, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.